You are listening to the FDNY Pearl Podcast, featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Welcome back, Pearl listeners, and thanks for joining us. Today we're going to talk about the FDNY's peer support groups, managing stress and post-traumatic events. With us in the studio is Captain Frank Lido, Deputy Director of FDNY's Counseling Service Unit, or CSU. Welcome, Frank. Thank you for having me. Can you share with us a little bit about your background, how you got to CSU, and what exactly is CSU? Sure. Like you said, I'm a captain on FDMY on the fire side, 34 years. And I've started really with the counseling unit almost 30 years ago. And I have a degree in counseling, and it was a line of duty death of Jack Toomey in 1987. And realized shortly after that there really were no support for firefighters after such terrible events. So worked with them from the field, Happy Land Social Club fire in 1990, where you know, so many civilians were killed, and the, the bombing of the first World Trade Center, and would come back and forth off the line after line of duty deaths or major events. What are the services for the counseling service? Well, the counseling service unit is located in five different locations. We have licensed counselors in all those locations where you can come in and receive therapy or marriage counseling. We have group therapy at those locations for different issues, substance abuse or any issue you can kind of think of. Teen drinking or teen substance abuse, we'll have groups around that. So who's eligible to request these services? Any member of the department, civilian or uniform, and retirees. Any any member that's been on the job or is currently on the job has access to the services of the counseling unit. And those services include their immediate family members? Yes. So we do not treat members, children under 18, but we have a terrific referral network for those members, uh, for those kids. Now, specifically, the peer support team. What is the concept and how does somebody get involved? We recognize, particularly after 9-11, that members were not going to just come to us and that we needed a bridge to get them to come to us. So we wanted to develop a cadre of the most trusted members of the department to say what's going on at the counseling unit is something that you can trust. These people are here for us. So we developed this group and they're still a very active group today. How does somebody apply to be in the peer group? If you believe that you want to work with us, come and just let us know. But for the most part, the way we've been able to develop this group is through referrals. So if somebody says, I know this great guy or gal that would be good at this, we actively pursue them. We want, again, to have the most trusted members of the department working in this Do you train them? They have extensive training. So to be a member of this group, you have to go through a two-day training, and once a month is other trainings. When you come on, you have a three-month trial period where you may not want, you may not like what you're doing, or we may not like the way you're doing it. So um, it's just kind of an apprentice period where you work with a seasoned veteran doing the work. Are retirees also peer counseling? Yeah, so most of our peers are retirees. And we kind of came upon this by accident after 9-11, because that's who came back to help us. And it was like a gold mine. We realized that we had we'd struck gold here with these members. Not only did it help the department, but it helped them. And we've been using that type of program since. They're active members as well. And if you're active and you're interested in doing this, please come to us. But 
most of our members that are peers are retirees. So exactly what is their role as a peer support member? Because I said counseling, and I don't think that's yeah, really it's accurate. Yeah, peer support. I mean, I, I think a counselor is a misnomer in a sense because they're not counselors. They're really, like I said, a bridge. They're there for support. They're there for information. They'll give information about the services that are available. They'll give information about PTSD or autism or anything that our members are struggling with. And if you have a problem, we have a peer that's probably had that problem. So we will try to connect you with a peer that suffered a suicide of a family member or had a child with leukemia. You know, our peers are experts in life because most of them have struggled with issues. So it's, it's helpful to a member to connect with someone that's had a similar issue. And most of the time, you may not need that next level of care where you go to see one of our licensed counselors. But if you do, that's available to you. So how does somebody access the peer support team or any of the counseling service units, well, uh, services? There's a 24-hour number where you can call and request counseling or a peer counselor. So that's available all the time. You can call any one of our satellites during business hours. If you're an officer or a member or civilian, you can let us know what's going on and we'll kind of troubleshoot. If it's a member that's having a difficult time or you had a sick member that you're working with and you want a group to talk about it, we'll be creative, but we'll make sure that you're in control of the way counseling looks. We know that, that you probably were not in control of the reason why you're calling us and we want you to be in control of how we approach the situation. So we're not going to tell you what this is going to look like. We're going to, going to give you suggestions and you're going to let us know what you would like us to do. That's an interesting concept. So that's different from, say, the early 80s when this whole concept of critical incident, stress debriefing, or management Right. Uh, that whole concept started probably in 83 or so. Yes, and I was trained really early on in the 80s, and I give a lot of credit to Jeff Mitchell and, and group that developed the critical incident stress debriefing because there was nothing out there for firefighters and EMTs at the time. Our changing has, has come a long way since then. Here at FDMY, we do not use critical incident stress debriefing any longer. What we do is really try to address individual needs one-on-one. And um, if, in fact, somebody would like a group, we give it to them. You know, who would you like to be in the group? Where would you like the group to be? Who would you like to facilitate it? And, you know, again, we give them control. We think of our approach, if there's a trauma in a, in a station or a firehouse, uh, as to be a good neighbor. And what would you want your good neighbor to do is to come over with a tray of lasagna and ask you what you need. You need somebody picked up at the airport or a cup of coffee. So the training you provide to the peer support group would include this type of yes, it's training on how not to be right. invasive, right? <laughs> because our jobs are somewhat invasive. Yes. The way we have to go in and take control of a situation and um, we give the orders in essence. Right, exactly. So it's really kind of changing roles, changing hats. It's about how to actively listen which is more difficult than it sounds. So we do a lot of training on active listening. We let our peers know that they may not necessarily see the fruits of their labor. And that's hard for us in this profession because we're typically, you know, get the patient to the hospital and we complete everything that we start. And that's a change of roles here. We're delivering a message, we're there for support, and they may make that phone call when you're gone, or they may make that full call 
two years later to reach out to counseling. We're just planting the seed. So it, it's a process in changing the roles from, from ENT or firefighter to peer support personnel. Now the peer support group, do they only respond to traumatic events like a line of duty, death, or a uh, significant call that's you know emotionally traumatic? Right, we see most of our role as going on routine visits. So the routine visits do a couple of things. We let people know we're out there. We'll bring up a topic. Right now we're on a substance abuse campaign, but we have campaigns of PTS or depression. We've had these campaigns where we, we bring this up in a station, we talk about it for 15 minutes, and hopefully the discussion continues when we leave. Our role there is to reduce stigma. So get these conversations going on in the stations, in the firehouses. You know, we know that people are suffering from PTSD. We know that people are suffering from depression. Let's have the conversation. So we see peers with routine visits where they're becoming comfortable with people in the stations and the firehouses and giving education. So when that traumatic call happens, they're a known entity. They're not a stranger showing up that hasn't delivered in the past. They've delivered in the past when you've had a problem at home, you've had a problem at work, uh, and now we're there because you n know we, we can deliver. I noticed when you activated CSU for Arroyo's death, they didn't go to the station, the counselors. They went to Fort Totten, and you opened the doors of Fort Totten to people to come whenever they wanted, with or without an appointment, for that weekend following her death. Right, and, and that's been our practice, is to respond to the stations or the firehouses with our peer support personnel. If there are a particular need for one of our clinicians, we will certainly bring them in. So if there is a person that's struggling and is, does not want to go to CSU and needs a higher level of support, we'll make that decision and bring them in. But that's not our first line of defense. Our first line of defense is to use our peer support and have our counselors, our licensed counselors at the units available to see members that want that individual counseling session or group counseling session in the privacy of our counseling units. And we've also learned that therapy at the station is not a good place because people are working and they need to be ready to work. So we can't be opening them up at the station. We realize that most of the healing that goes on is between the members. And we don't want to interfere with that. Uh, that's not our role. Our role is not to interfere with that, but to facilitate the group support and also to facilitate each individual member's coping mechanisms. And what do they do to, that that they've that taken care of themselves in the past? Was it to go for a run, to go fishing, to go to the movies, to lay on the couch and do nothing? What is it that they did to take care of themselves? We want to encourage them to do that again. We don't want to tell them, okay, here's what you got to do. Sit in a group and tell me how you feel because that may not be what they did in the past. Right. You start teaching them something new and different. Maybe it'll work, but maybe it won't. And we may even traumatize them. You know, they, they may not want to hear the gory details of that crisis again or for the first time. We want to help them. We don't want to put them in a position or a place that they don't want to be. How would you say that you've made improvements to the Counseling Services Unit since, you know, all those 
lessons learned yeah, during the 9-11? Every year it changes, and if we look the same way next year as we look today, I, I would think that we're not doing a good job. So we listen to our members. You know, like what are they struggling with? We develop groups for families that are struggling with kids or family members with opioid addiction. There's an opioid crisis right now. There wasn't 10 years ago. So we change, and groups are a terrific way to address needs. So to hear how other people are dealing with it and, and to uh, express uh, with someone that is, is, is struggling the way you're struggling is, is so healing. We've changed a lot of our treatment into, into group therapy as well. I know that you've been asked to go to various parts of the country to assist with other EMS and fire departments mm-hmm. with setting up a similar uh, peer support group and maybe even a similar counseling services unit. Tell us about that. From 9-11, we learned a lot. We learned a lot. We were like a test tube for many things, you know, and uh, we did a lot of things right and we did a lot of things wrong, but we learned from that. And over time, we've evolved what I think is probably the best program in the world. And when there are tragedies in other places, FDNY gets a call and we typically go, and we help that city. Most recently, we were down in Orlando with the Pulse nightclub shooting. We were up at Newtown, Connecticut, with the shooting up there in, in the grade school, um, Boston Marathon, or Hurricane Katrina, or Aurora, Colorado, or San Bernardino, uh, so many places that we've, we've gone to, our peer counselors, and help uh, that department struggle through what they were going through. And we don't go there as the experts. We go there as people that have been through difficult times and want to lend our support and give any information that we can to help them through. And hopefully when they get through it, they'll help the next uh, department that that struggles uh, with a terrible incident. Have you found that most of these places you've gone to set up something long-term? Or did they just deal with the crisis of the moment and kind of shut down? We we were fortunate on 9-11 that we had a program in place to build from. And what we've found in many cases is that they're building a program reacting to an event. And that's not always the best time, you know, to build a, uh, an emergency room after you've had most like, you know, both a casualty event. And many times it falls apart. So we encourage departments nationwide to build their programs today. And if they don't have the funding and they don't have the personnel, pick some low-hanging fruit. Just start a program because I think you're much more likely to be able to save a coworker's life this way than in the field. So start small and build. I want to circle back to the stigma mm-hmm. piece because for a long time that has been a major issue when it comes to getting help um, in this particular service, whether mm-hmm. it's FDNY or for myself, where my training and the beginning of my career starts before the merger with FDNY. And there was always a stigma in the early days, particularly. When we did merge, and again, I was most of the time I was in the field working with CSU, I did notice a big difference between fire and EMS after the merger and, and the confidence in EAP, as it was called on the EMS side. EAP is an employee's assistance program. And most departments in EMS around the country have EAPs. Counseling service unit is like an EAP, but has many other services, so it's, it's different. 
So we've worked really hard to, to let people know that they should have confidence in the services. And I think 9-11, unfortunately, did so many terrible things, but one of the things it did in a positive way was lift the stigma in the stations and in the firehouses around the city. People knew that they can go for help and it, it was going to be held in confidence that that information wasn't going to be spread around and they were going to get good services. I think a lot of the stigma is internal stigma. A member may not want to appear weak and not necessarily with their coworkers because their coworkers are typically understanding um, and understand that we all struggle from time to time and that um, the strong person steps forward and gets the help. And I think the way that we were brought up in our jobs is to appear always ready and strong. And um, stepping forward, and, and I've learned this over the years, is, is really a sign of strength. That you, know, that you have something that's bothering you, you address it, and then you're a better family person, you're a better employee, and you're just happier in general. So I think we've come a long way, but we have a long way to go. And that's, that's on us in, in a sense that we have to do a, a better job of letting people know that the service is available and what we can provide. And it's up to the members as well to step forward and get support. Yeah, I think if we don't, as a group, create a culture that accepts CSU as a normal mm -hmm. part of our existence and that people from various times during their career may need to access CSU, mm -hmm then um, it really is our fault, right? My hope is that CSU is woven into the fabric of the department and that we're a tool for every member, that they can look at us as part of their tool in their toolbox. Do you have anything yet or have you started to uh, consider developing something for the sudden increase in deaths secondary to World Trade Center related illness? We've worked closely with Sloan Kettering there are all different levels of treatment, and there are all so many different diseases. So to have a group with people that are struggling is difficult. People that have recovered, it's easier, and caregivers, much easier. Now, what about the members? Do you find members struggling more so today? Just this calendar year alone, we're averaging about one World Trade Center uh, illness death per week. Yeah, I, right before I came here, I was um, talking with a close friend of a member that just passed away. And um, absolutely, you know, it, it, it's something that, we're, that you don't get used to, even though it's happening once a week. And it hits close to home. It hits closer and closer to home, it seems like, every day. Do you think that the retirees, being that the bulk of 9-11 responders are in the retiree side of the group now? Do you think they struggle more? I do. And I think you lose a lot when you leave the department. You lose your identity in many ways and you lose that group cohesion that you had. And you lose um, the ability to help others in the way that we do. And just the recent 15-year anniversary of WTC showed that our retirees are struggling with PTSD and depression at three times the rate of their active members. So whatever's going on outside, uh, we need to let members know and be very clear that you've given a tremendous amount to this city and this department and that we will not and cannot forget about you when you leave. So the services are available to you when you retire. You deserve that and you should take advantage of it. If 
there was one kernel of wisdom that you could provide to our listeners who are not part of the FDNY, mm -hmm. who have interest in doing something in their own department, what advice would you give them? They may have an EAP, an Employees Assistance Program, that is available to them, and they may not even know where it is, or they may not know how to access it. So I would develop a relationship with that EAP. What we typically see is a member is struggling with something, and then the people that care are looking in the yellow pages or looking online for some support. So have those connections developed. Go to the emergency room in the local hospital in the next community and say, if we have a member struggling here, can we come, uh, you know, have a back door, an easy entrance into the, the emergency room for an assessment? Start developing connections that way. And then bring it to, your, to the decision makers, saying that you know, we take really great care of our equipment, we take really great care of our rigs, so we really need to start thinking about the men and women that are doing the job. Mm. That's a good point. You had made a comment to me off the air about um, mental health specifically and how people view mental health issues compared to, say, some other medical problem. Right. I, I still think that's true today. People don't control if they have depression or PTSD or anxiety disorder the same way they don't control if they have a broken shoulder or an ankle injury. And we should look at it the same way. If someone's struggling with a, a medical issue, we give them referrals, we give them support, we help them along, and it should be the same way with mental illness. Uh, th there is no difference. Well, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, it's this been, has an been absolute, very enlightening. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us. Come back to our next podcast when we go one on one with another FDNY EMS professional. I'm Liz Cassio. Stay safe. FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest. Twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And when seconds count, the men and the women of the FDNY are there for us to protect us and keep us safe when the unthinkable happens. No matter the challenge, no matter the danger, our firefighters and EMTs serve with honor, dedication, and bravery. New York's bravest are there for us. Let's be there for them. Your support of the FDNY Foundation ensures that the world's best fire department has the world's best training, equipment, and education. Go to fdnyfoundation.org and help New York's bravest save a life today.